Hello, everyone. Welcome to It All Starts Here. This is a brand new podcast series here at the Institute for Women's Health at UCL here in London. I'm your host, Olivia Moyer. And this podcast series is really going to focus on um, the communication and education around topics in reproductive science and women's health. And I have with me today a very special guest to try and kick off the series in a way that we can talk about where this podcast all started. And that is from this passion of mine that has been growing in the field of science communication. So I have with me here today, Dr. Kim Bodding. Hi, Olivia. Who is uh, a researcher at the Institute for Women's Health. Um, she's been focusing on the, um, broadly, the long-term effects of complicated pregnancies on maternal and fetal health. Um, and has sort of stemmed into this field of science communication through postgraduate studies over at Cambridge in um, a degree program of science communication. Hi, thanks for having me, Olivia. So nice to have you here, Cam. Yeah, so I guess this is a second hat for me now. So I am a scientist. Um, My training's been uh, in uh, the effects of, like you said, complicated pregnancies um, throughout the life course. But I guess through having my own pregnancies, I became quite aware of maybe how what I knew um, differed quite a lot from what other pregnant women that I was coming across knew and how, based on that, it may have impacted uh, the way which we felt about our own pregnancies and the experiences that we had. For me, luckily, quite positive. So I guess I wanted to know how to better improve the situation for pregnant women generally and through that I looked into science communication. Um, So I'm just finishing up my course now so I've learned quite a lot actually. Um, It's been quite nice to get uh, a second viewpoint that's come from a non-science background and to sort of just to get a better understanding of how science fits in communities. Absolutely yeah and I think you know we've had various conversations already about this topic and I think you know something that we're both very passionate about is just the awareness that you know should be brought to these topics and how you know just because someone comes from a particular background you know in this case science doesn't mean that we should have more information than you know anyone else walking out outside. Absolutely I think the first sort of mind-blown moment for me was this idea that as scientists we generally fall into the deficit model and that's that's the idea that people in society are walking around in need of facts and we should should give them all the facts that we can give them but we all know ourselves that just as scientists it doesn't mean we know everything about everything if you ask me how do you launch a rocket I've got no idea how to launch a rocket um so you don't need to tell everyone everything that you know. As mm-hmm. a scientist, we're the expert. And then it's up to the individual and their experiences and what influence their, their lives, what, in, what information and what facts they choose to remember and incorporate into their lives. So it's not just about providing facts for people, um, as important as that is, um, but it's also understanding how people might use those facts to then you know, change their behaviour. Right, yeah. And I think, you know, something that um, is important to consider is, is oftentimes, like, people describe, a, you know, a major issue that they feel with understanding scientific topics that, you know, rather than it being sort of what you've described as this deficit model, they wish it was more of a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that that's 
also true of, you know, myself, even yeah. in my courses that I take, you know, I often wish that there was more of a dialogue that went on. And, Absolutely. and I think that we know that conversations yeah. can really help in trying to understand a topic. Absolutely. And that's where science communication is moving towards. A lot has been learned. So back in the 1980s, in the UK in particular, there were concerns from the government that people didn't have a particularly high view of science. So a committee was set up um, to look at um, how to improve science education to then hopefully improve the society's view of sciences. And in that process, there was a lot of energy and effort put into communicating facts to people. They even did tests. They did sort of equivalent in the US as well. They, they did like science tests as a base to know what people knew, like does the earth revolve around the sun or all questions like that. And then they did all this effort all these producing of science facts for people and then decades, decades or so later they tested again and they hadn't really improved <laughs> the facts that people knew and that, that comes back into what I said about the rockets. Unless it has an impact on your life, you're, you're rarely going to engage with factual information that's not relevant to you. Um, and that is also because the way the facts are being communicated maybe wasn't the best way for, for different groups. So there is a bit of a spectrum in science communication and it's important to inform people. So you want to give them the facts. But it's also important to consult with people to find mm -hmm. out what it is that they want to know or how best they want the information provided to them. Um, what, if we look specifically at research, what things, research questions that um, certain diseases that impact people's lives, like what do they want um, from medical research? So there are um, groups like patient and public involvement groups where people with scientists, and we do here at the Institute, talk to patients that um, may have had a condition specific to lead to our research project and we ask them, is this research relevant as someone who's had this disease? Uh, what we, could we do better? Um, and make sure it's a conversation uh, between scientists and people who our research is actually going to uh, affect. And then if you go one step further, you can also do proper co-production where scientists and the community together can um, do research. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be, you know, obviously the ideal situation. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think, you know, I, I like to reflect on and I think it's important, you know, such a great example is, you know, for example, with, with COVID and, you know, how the rollout of the vaccine in particular, but also just the different pieces of, you know, evidence and advices that we were receiving from the government and from scientists and researchers, you know, trying to um, really create um, a better understanding of what in that was helpful yeah. and also, you know, where lessons that we can learn from that, yeah, you know. Absolutely. As awful as COVID was, it was, we learned a lot about how to convey facts to people to try and get them to behave in a particular way that you want them to behave. And it was quite obvious from the vaccine uptake that telling the entire population a fact doesn't mean the entire population is going to do the same thing based on that fact you've provided them. Yeah, and what do you think it is that... Quite a lot of that was based on trust, actually. So right. it's how people trust the source the information is coming from. And not only in the UK, but in a lot of other countries, it was people of ethnic minorities for that country who were the least likely to take up the COVID vaccine. And that's 
that's quite poignant when it comes to trust because they're more likely to feel less empowered in their situations, feel like the government may not necessarily represent them. And there's also been other situations where maybe ethnic minority groups have been used in some unethical medical research that's happened in the past. So it's unsurprising then that if a government tells you to take a vaccine that we've not done a lot of trials on, it's perceived as being rushed, um, that you may not want to take that vaccine. And um, fair enough. And the risk might yeah. seem quite high to you. But it was then quite interesting to see how that was perceived. So people just assumed maybe that they're anti-vaxxers, they don't want to take it, and there was quite a negative stigmatism that came along to those who didn't want to be vaccinated. Um, but there's quite a lot of information on the way that we conveyed facts um, that also should be learned from that and how it may be not that it's the people who've not taken the vaccine that should have tried harder. But maybe we should think about the way that that health information was conveyed to people. Mm -hmm. Just facts may not have been enough for them. And in that situation, a conversation was probably more appropriate. So maybe people wanted or could have used the opportunity to have a conversation about the vaccine to talk about their concerns and then their concerns could be alleviated. And there was studies showing that people who were unsure about being vaccinated or didn't want to be vaccinated, if um, they had access to better science communication methods, that they then chose to be vaccinated. Um, so there's a lot on the fact, but also the messenger of that fact and trust, and also the emotion uh, that's involved in the topic. And for pregnancy, for women's health, they're quite emotive topics um, so it's it's something that we, we really need to delve into as part of the institute. Yeah, and consider you know as you said the the kind of emotional side of it. Yeah. Um, and more uh, a better understanding you know how the message will be received. I think you know obviously um, I think one overarching theme that comes out of this is really that there just needs to be more collaboration between the different disciplines yeah. you know the scientists have you know a great amount of information but yeah. I think you know so do the media outlets so yeah. do the community and yeah. a way to better kind of implement practice and policy um, that suits you know a wider range of the population and also yeah. having a more effective way of you know practicing these different um you know, concepts would just be to be able to have this platform or this area that we can, you know, take take this conversation forwards in a way that um, better suits everyone. Yeah, so a lot of science communication studies as a field, um, there's a lot of psychology involved, um, sociology. Um, so there is a lot of literature out there already. Um, so, yeah, it's engaging scientists with those communities to make sure we can get the science facts out um, in ways that are more conversational. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of taking this into, you know, we've looked a little bit at the sort of historical, the historical point of view of science communication and, you know, kind of stepping out of this deficit model and more into this sort of conversation style way to um, better have science communication. Um, but then, you know, taking it one step further today, looking specifically at barriers that really yeah. prevent, you know, yeah. the science communication. You know, we've talked about the mistrust in the government yeah. that comes from, you know, generations, which we have to acknowledge yeah. and, so you know, can't boundaries, look past. Boundaries between scientists and society, they do come, they are important and we sort of push 
from both directions, from both scientists and society. So to be seen as an expert, and that's also what we're talking about, providing expert facts. You know, how do we perceive information from the source? Is it an expert or is it someone on a podcast? Not us, obviously, <laughs> but it's maybe someone who's a social influencer who may not have a background in this information. So how do you make sure that the facts are actually um, accurate and that's by having boundaries in place where to be an expert, you've gone to university um, and you've gone to university and you've got a degree, uh, you've got a qualification and then society views that qualification as, yes, you're an expert. Mm-hmm. So that's important to have these boundaries. Um, but we need to make sure that those boundaries aren't preventing people from accessing information. Totally. Um, so, yeah, making sure we're publishing uh, papers in journals that can be accessed by the public, um, making sure that um, we, you, we communicate in a way that's accessible, the language that we use. Um, we have had a lot of training as scientists on how to write the most information in the shortest amount of words possible. We're very good at being very succinct and very to the point. But if you talk to another scientist, that's not necessarily how they read information and it's not best how they learn. So we need to almost unpick everything we've been told <laughs> in order to then better communicate with the public. And jargon's quite a good one. We need to get rid of as much jargon as possible so that the language is understandable. Yeah, and I think, you know, even as, you know, I would say a little bit of a junior scientist that I am, like, I struggle with that. So I yeah. can't imagine, you know, not coming from a scientific background. Like, I know the same is true of any field, but, you know, I'll be sitting in my courses and even just... The acronyms that are used yeah. for the same ranges of, for example, cardiac diseases, yeah. you know, I should know that. But yeah. it really, even if you do know it, it can be hard yeah. to really pick that yeah. apart yeah. and, and understand. And acronyms is a really good example because if you are trying to write an abstract, you've only got a certain number of words, then acronyms are a really good way to reduce the number of words that you're using. But we need to sort of undo that and making sure we're spelling things out unless, you know, it's something that's very commonly used that everyone is absolutely going to understand for sure yeah and I think you know um sort of stemming out of that is I kind of see this trouble that exists a gap that exists between you know the scientist and you know how practically they would implement better science communication and you know I think I know a little bit about what the experiences of a scientist and the different pressures put on you to interact with the public, but also just for your own research. And I think, you know, maybe you could touch on a little bit about... Yeah, so we are... um, It's a good thing. Um, Funding bodies are asking us to show the impact of our research. Mm. Um, And it used to be impact just used to be writing a publication, uh, getting accepted in a journal that's perceived as having a higher impact Um, but that's not how impact's necessarily being measured anymore so funding bodies want to know have you communicated your science outside of the scientific community Uh, have you been involved at all in policy conversations and again they're two different audiences so we talk to the scientists we're very good at talking to scientists as scientists but then the language you use to talk to the public will then be different again to how we communicate with policymakers. So it's all about knowing your audience um, and making sure you're communicating in a way that's appropriate for that audience. Um, so 
just remind me what your question was again. Yeah, no, I think I bridging that gra- that gap that exists um, between you know the practical, the daily life yeah. of a scientist yeah. and the different um, challenges faced by you in order to produce work, but also interact with your public audience. Yeah. You know, how do you think it would be helpful in a way to kind of um, eliminate that gap that exists? Yeah. So and it's quite a scary place, really. When you're a scientist and everything's being quite controlled, um, maybe within your institution they are the filter for what information then comes out into the public space. So via um, your PR within uh, your institutions, um, if you wanted to speak to the media, if you do a press release, that's all sort of controlled within institution. Um, and that's that's excellent. Um, but if, as a scientist, you want to speak directly to the public, that's quite a different thing. Um, so social media is a platform at which that can make it a lot easier. Mm. And I guess by being an expert and putting out facts about your research, that's building a case um, for making sure that there's truth in the information that's out there, um, having more experts saying that information against maybe some non-experts and their opinions um, does help um, provide more of a balance as to to what is truth, what is fact. But how do you go go about that? Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think, you know, like, again, that's something that we sort of um, touched on a little bit in previous conversations was really just, you know, I am definitely an active social media user. Yeah. And I think part of where my passion for science communication stems out of is just I see the utility of these different resources and you know particularly like right now Instagram TikTok these different pages where people are able to um, create content and you know really just take off and I think obviously these these different platforms are really useful as sources of entertainment but I like obviously can't help but see the use of these platforms in a more you know educational way but it doesn't have to be kind of like we're here today to tell you in this kind of you know instructional way that you know again has that barrier that we talked about where the scientist is speaking down it it can be in a way that is um more engaging and you know using more simple terms or more engaging words and also you know the the use of potentially having someone as the the middleman the messenger of different pieces of information um you know which I think is a a good area to explore because something that you know I've definitely noticed is there will be these different influencers like I said that I that I follow and engage with and and I think I, I really love and support their platforms but you know sometimes maybe speaking a little bit out of turn and I'm like "Mm, I don't know where you're coming up with that information or certain people providing certain pieces of advice and you know obviously there can be truth to certain things but I think you know caution needs to exist around you know having such an influence but you know maybe not having an educational backing or again it's it's how do we get to the audience that we want to speak to so as scientists even with social media platforms what you're probably doing is just talking to a lot of other scientists. So the general public might not be following you on Twitter. You might have a lot of people you've met at conferences. You've got other scientists, um, which is great for improving collaborations 
universally. But we might not be the most exciting people for the general public to follow. So there, there is a place for people who have more um, relatability to the general public that might be seen as a messenger for our factual information that might actually reach more people. And they use that in um, documentary styles, for instance. So a really good one that came up recently was about the menopause. Um, Davina McCall in the UK, she's a recognised TV personality and she gave a documentary about the menopause and has written a book. It's got awards. She has been able to access a lot of people. And if you follow the structure of that documentary, yes, there was facts in it and they had scientists to say the factual information to make sure that there was... Um, some credibility in the information that was coming across but quite a lot of the documentary was actually personal experiences and that's where people will engage more with the information if it is relatable if they can use those facts and apply it to their own situation and it has a lot more impact so yes it's great putting facts in forming people Uh, we can have social media as scientists and say this is x y and z um, but, but there may be a situation actually where we need to gauge with other people uh, to help get our message across um, to more to more society. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, again, this theme of collaboration comes in because I just, uh, I think there's a great opportunity for the scientists to um, communicate with people you know, not not to say that there aren't great scientist communicators, like they exist, absolutely. But, you know, the opportunity that exists between having sort of a scientist in conversation with some sort of um, media personality, yeah. maybe as a way to, you know, have these facts being kind of strained out to yeah. the public audience yeah, in a more engaging way. And I think whatever way you choose to do science communication you need to also make sure you can measure it um, so if funding bodies are asking you to provide evidence that you've communicated science to the general public just saying I did a thing um, isn't really a great measure of the impact of that thing so if you're going to do any sort of science communication you need to I think put some effort in as well as setting up a way that you can um, measure it Maybe some surveys, for instance, um, of your audience. Find out who watched it, how many people, what was the demographic of those people. You could ask them questions like, do you think you learnt something? Um, if the information you're trying to tell them is to change behaviour, you can ask them, do you think you may change your behaviour? Um, Anything longer term than that does require money. Like if you're going to do follow-up studies and find out did people actually change their behaviour, what impact did that have long term, um, that does actually require some money. Um, So there may be a case for um, applying for funding that's not just from science bodies to do science, but maybe you want to look at applying for some money to do some science communication activities and pots of money do exist, various learned societies, and the university, UCL does, UCL and other universities, um, will have grants that you can apply for in order to do some science communication activities. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think, you know, it's a great, um, it's, it's obviously it's important to be able to, to measure these different things, and, you know, it can be really hard, I think, as a scientist to be able to kind of like organize all the different tasks Absolutely. that you have to get done yeah. and um 
you know, be able to, to identify the different areas that you are trying to contribute yeah. to. But I think it's also a really rewarding um, thing to be able to interact with people and, yeah. and feel kind of heard and understood. Absolutely. And I think as scientists, we, we often don't get that. We can feel a bit like we're finding all the answers, but maybe we're not having much impact. Mm. Um, whereas maybe someone who works in a medical field who actually can see patients and um, they can use that information, the facts, in order to influence people's lives, you yeah. know, you'd get an instant reward from that. You do feel like you're having a, making a difference. Yeah. Um, so that comes from being in direct conversation with the community. So by communicating your science, you know yourself, you may get get some positive, some more of a reward for you yeah. as to actually your science is making a difference. Yeah. People want this information. People uh, need this information to improve their lives. Yeah. But, yeah, we also need to make sure we don't then fall into the deficit model again where where we think that everyone needs to know everyone needs to know our facts. Yeah. So there are community groups potentially. Yeah. There might be community groups that exist that are built around your particular disease or um, there might be women's groups, for instance. So it might be worth approaching those those community organisations and asking them if you know they would value you talking with them and set it up as more of a conversation platform um, in order to find out what it is that they want to know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you were mentioning that um, the patient outreach group that yeah. you are a part of, um, you know, I, I think that that is something that is is really cool in a way to interact with people from varying backgrounds yeah. to really hear Absolutely. So patient and public involvement is, yeah, it's really important in medical-related medical um, situations. Um, you also have to be a bit conscious, though, about making sure you're not exploiting your group. Right. So if you're going to a patient and public involvement group and you're asking them for feedback, you know, you need to value the contribution they're making. So we always make payments if they want payment for their time, you also have to make an activity like that quite accessible. If these people are working, then, you know, are you doing it during working hours? Is it um, childcare issues? There people have busy lives with other things other than your science that they find interesting. So it's making sure your activities, even with PPI, is accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just, just from conversations that I've had, um, you know, with my friends particularly, you know, relating back to reproductive science and women's health, it's, it's, I think that a huge um, challenge is, you know, taking it back to this area of social media and, and the different areas that scientists can contribute to communication with the public. Um, It's, it's not that people don't want to know. It's not that people aren't um, you know, already trying to understand. Yeah. It's just that there is mixed messaging, you know, that yeah. exists. Yeah. And there is, again, the lack of trust um, or, you know, an overtrust in certain people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, going forwards, this field of science communication really needs to focus on, you know, an area or a specific platform where we can get ideas across, overarching concepts across, and creating this sort of safe space where people feel that they can interact with the scientist. 
It's um, about making sure if people want the information, they can find the information. And if people have questions about that information, they've got someone they can go to to ask, to clarify. Yeah. Um, a way of fitting that information into their lives, especially if it's something you want people to do in terms of changing behaviour. Um, and we all know that doctors don't have much time these days. They're very overworked and where it used to be maybe that the, in terms of medical things, the platform people would have would be to talk to their medical practitioners. Maybe that's not available as much as it used to be anymore. So people may have less space to clarify various bits of information coming at them. And I guess, I guess you know, if you bombard enough people with enough actual science facts that maybe you'll win over the non the non-factual information that's being um, disseminated. Mm. Um, but that, yeah. as a scientist, can be quite tiring. So it's not so much about making sure that you're doing the most science communication possible. It's just making sure that what you do communicate is done in the best way possible for your audience. Right. And I guess if we're talking in the sense from the institution, we're not talking about just all women either. Sometimes a lot of these situations actually have an impact on men's lives as well. We need to consider the families of people. Um, so it's it's making sure the message is then received by multiple types of people. And so we need to change the way we communicate to the different groups that we're then approaching. And that goes for um, different ethnic minorities as well. We need to make sure that we're not only communicating in a way that's very accessible for people of higher socioeconomic situations. Um, we need to make sure that it's not just communicated from a university or an institution that historically may be a barrier for people to come and approach to. Some people may have left school and thought, I'm never going back to a research institution, any sort of science, any sort of library, I want nothing to do with it. So... A lot of it as well is making sure you're going to where people are, not just asking people to come to you because there are as well barriers there in terms of the places where the communication happens that we need to consider. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, you know, in the same way that we're talking about how a scientist wants to be heard, it's really important also the community wants to be heard equally, you know, yeah. and, and as they should be. And I think, you know... Um, kind of today what my takeaways are is just that going forwards to have you know a better area of science communication it really it starts with having a space where people feel that rather than this sort of top-down deficit model of science communication it's more of a conversation yeah absolutely and um, I think you know we've talked about the different resources that there are available um, but I think you know there's still more that we can do um, yeah. and, and more that um, the different areas, you know, whether it's media, whether it's science, whether, whether it's the government, um, you know, public health policies, I think that there is the space now in particular to create platforms where um, they're unique in the fact that there can be kind of a back and forth. You know? and, and UCL is a good place for that. There's a lot on the science, but there's also a lot on policy and there's a lot on psychology and sociology. So it's making sure that we're all talking to each other because we all want the same thing, which is to improve people's lives. Absolutely. Well, that's, yeah, that's a great, I think, great way to end. 
Um, Kim, it was so lovely having you here today and, and speaking with me. you about this topic. Um, I look forward to, to, to seeing what happens in this space going forwards. Good luck. Thanks.